Hello and welcome to season two of Asia Inscripted. I'm Vivian Su. And I'm Isabel Beleza. And this is US Asia Institute's podcast series, where we cover key stories of the day with diverse speakers with firsthand knowledge of Asia. Our guest on this episode of Asia Unscripted is Dr. Ramon Pacheco Pardo, Associate Professor in International Relations at King's College London and the KFBUB Career Chair at the Institute for European Studies of Freihe Universiteit Brussel. Dr. Pacheco Pardo has held visiting positions at Korea University, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, and Melbourne University. And his publications include the book North Korea-U.S. Relations from Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-un, published in 2019. He has participated in various international relations dialogues and has advised the European External Action Service, the South Korean Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the United Kingdom's Cabinet and Foreign and Commonwealth Offices. Dr. Pacheco Pardo is also a frequent media commentator on Northeast Asian Affairs and EU-East Asia relations. In the following clips, Dr. Pacheco Pardo speaks on South Korean foreign policy and its regional and global positionality. Please be reminded that the U.S. Asia Institute is a nonpartisan, non-advocacy organization with no policy agenda. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official position of the U.S. Asia Institute. We begin the episode with Dr. Pacheco Pardo discussing his experiences working on South Korea. So I originally come from uh, Spain. Uh, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I, I moved to Korea in uh, 2003, 2004. And I was living in Seoul for uh, one year. And that's when I started to study about uh, Korean Asia in depth. Uh, later on, I, I lived in, in Seoul again during my PhD. And ever since, I've been going on a, on a regular basis to the country. And with regards to my work, I teach at King's College in London, and I here I teach about uh, East Asia, and I also hold the KVUB Korea Chair, uh, which is the only Korea Foundation Chair in, in Europe. Uh, and through my two jobs, I can teach about Korea and about East Asia, but I also conduct uh, research. For the most part, I focus on uh, South Korean foreign policy and international relations, plus South Korean political economy, as well as North Korea relations with the United States. Okay, great. Thank you so much. So to begin our conversation, would you mind giving our listeners some background on Korea, such as the current leadership and the political alignment of the government? Absolutely. So the the president, uh, Moon Jae-in, he's from the Democratic Party. And he was elected after the candlelight revolution that took place in Korea in, in late 2016, early 2017. Uh, the former president, uh, Park Geun-hye, was uh, removed from power and Moon won the election. So now we have the Democratic Party in power. There is a non-renewable five-year term, so we will have elections in a couple of years. But what we have seen in Korea since the transition to democracy in 1987-1988 is that there has been these changes in governance between liberal and conservative governments every 10 years. You tend to have the other party winning the election. So what we see is that in two years' time, we will have a new election. The expectation is that the Liberals will win again. But obviously, this is very soon to know. If we focus on uh, Moon himself, you could argue that the Liberal Democratic Party is divided in groups. One of them is more center-left. The other one is a little bit more far-left. And Moon, I would place him among the center-left politicians uh, within South Korea. So he does believe in a strong alliance with the United States. He wants uh, rapprochement and engagement with North Korea, but on the other hand, 
he insists that sanctions should be in place as long as North Korea behaves in the way it has been doing for the past few years. So uh, he wouldn't be on the extreme left, which is another important force uh, within the Democratic Party and within Korean politics. Okay, thank you so much for that concise and comprehensive overview on South Korean political affairs. So thinking more regionally, can you talk a little bit more about the political role that South Korea plays in East Asia and the broader Asia-Pacific region? I think there are two issues here. Uh, One issue is how does South Korea see itself within East Asia and the Asia-Pacific region? South Korea, if you look at its uh, identity as a foreign policy actor, it considers itself to be a, a middle power that within East Asia can play the role of a balancer between China on the one hand and the United States on the other hand, or sometimes China on the one hand and Japan on the other side, for example, if we focus on economic affairs. So this is how South Korea is itself, which means that it tries to be proactive. It tries to bring together the views of uh, different country, countries, obviously East Asian is very diverse with uh, rich countries, uh, poor countries, with our, which are democracies, countries that have authoritarian regimes in power. So South Korea tries to bring different views, uh, different positions from different countries together. Now, that's how South Korea sees itself. Now, in practice, it actually really depends on the issue, how active South Korea can be, how influential can it be. I would say that when it comes to economic matters, because of the size of the economy, it is the third largest economy in East Asia, it can actually play an important role. So we have seen this within the ASEAN Plus 3 framework. For example, after the global financial crisis, South Korea was one of the countries that pushed for creation of uh, financial mechanisms. Now, if you look, for example, at uh, other economic matters such as uh, trade, well, South Korea has a growing trade network that involves uh, China in Northeast Asia and several countries in Southeast Asia. So, for example, Singapore or Vietnam. So it is really center of one of the countries that is the center of regional economic dynamics. When it comes to security, however, uh, I would say that it is much more difficult for South Korea to play that uh, middle power role. Obviously, the U.S. and China, the two biggest military powers uh, in, in the region. But for example, if you focus on Southeast Asia, South Korea doesn't have the military presence that would allow it to have a more important say on uh, traditional security issues. So there is the self-identity of South Korea as a middle power and a balancer in the region, and then the reality that this works in some cases, but in other cases it actually doesn't work. I see. So can you actually talk a little bit more about the relationship between China and South Korea? Maybe a little bit about its history, but also how this you see this relationship evolving in the future. In my view, the relationship right now is much better than it was uh, historically. Uh, historically, we have talked about South Korea as a, a basal state of, of China, basically having to be part of the so-called tributary system with China uh, at the center. But we shouldn't forget that sometimes there were attempts to invade uh, Korea coming from China or through China. So, so there have been these historical issues between China and Korea when it was a unified country. Now, in 1992, when, when Korea and South Korea when South Korea and China established diplomatic relations, we saw the end of hostility that took place during the Cold War. And we saw an improvement in economic relations, in diplomatic relations, and you could argue in security relations. 
And now we shouldn't say they're the two closest of countries, right? Because, for example, if you look at South Korea's security posture over this past few years, uh, very clearly it is not only about countering the potential threat coming from North Korea, it is also about the potential threat coming from China as well. So it's something that we need to consider. But if you look at economic relations, if you look at tourism flows, students going from one country to, to another, relations you could argue have never been as strong uh, as they are today. And even if you talk about politics and, and diplomacy, there have been some frictions. For example, they had an issue when, when the U.S. and the Obama administration started to deploy uh, the Thai uh, anti-missile system in South Korea, and then there was an unofficial ban on certain economic activity coming from China. But uh, you see cooperation, for example, within the ASEAN Plus uh, framework. You see cooperation within the Belt and Road Initiative framework. So you see cooperation on many different uh, political issues. And even now within the current pandemic that we are suffering across the world, you see how there has been, uh, if not cooperation, at the very least consultation uh, between South Korea and, and China. So there are positives that we need to consider because historically this was not necessarily the case. Earlier, you mentioned that one of the other powers that South Korea is involved in is the U.S. So as most of our listeners are based in the U.S., we would be interested in learning more about this relationship between the U.S. and South Korea. Given that the U.S. was involved in the establishment of South Korea and later deployed U.S. troops in the Korean War, can you tell us more about how this historic involvement has impacted U.S.-Korea relations? I think that there are three key issues here. Uh, the first one is that sometimes there's discussion about frictions in the alliance between the U.S. and, and South Korea. And right now, for example, uh, under President Trump, it is true that over the past year or year and a half, frictions have increased for a, a number of different reasons. But having said that, when you look at uh, polls carried out in South Korea, you see that uh, 70, 80, 90 percent of South Koreans, depending on the poll, they are supportive of the alliance. You see how the conservative party in South Korea is very supportive of the alliance and even the liberal party that is currently in power with President Moon being part of it. They don't challenge the existence of the alliance. They would like South Korea to play a more independent role when it comes to foreign affairs, to be more independent from the U.S., even when it comes to South Korea's own security, uh, liberals would want South Korea to be leading uh, the response to the threat coming, for example, from North Korea. But this doesn't mean that they want to disband the alliance. So I think when it comes to security, we shouldn't forget that the alliance is quite strong. Now, if we compare with the U.S.-Japan alliance, uh, I think most analysts and policymakers in, in South Korea, and probably also in Japan, uh, would argue that the U.S.-Japan alliance is even stronger, right? And this also has to do with, with the role of China in reinforcing the U.S.-Japan alliance. But uh, we cannot say that South Korea is going to demand or ask uh, the removal of U.S. troops from, from the country anytime soon. This is not going to happen. There is no indication. Uh, furthermore, the alliance uh, was reinforced when the U.S. and South Korea signed the free trade agreement. A few years ago, because this helped to boost trade and investment between both countries. This was already quite a strong, but it was reinforced thanks to the FTA, right? And what we see here is that the FTA obviously had a, a very important economic component from the US side, which was to increase exports to, to South Korea, especially, but there was also the political component of, of offering uh, a carrot to one of the strongest partners that the US has in, in, in Asia. So I think that's the first uh, aspect that is important to consider about the alliance. Uh, the second aspect to consider is that, uh, as you said in your question, 
the U.S. throughout the Korean War helped South Korea to survive the invasion of North Korea and remain as an independent country. And this is something for which South Koreans of all ages, especially obviously older Koreans who were alive during the Korean War or were born during it or shortly afterwards, are very grateful for. So there's this historical component, this historical ties, uh, strengthened alliance. And now there's a third component, which is, I think, more related to South Korea as a foreign policy actor and the wish that South Korea has to be more independent. Uh, during the Cold War, there were some frictions between the U.S. and South Korea, uh, but these were minimal. Now, after the Cold War, there have been instances, for example, under President uh, Nomohyeon, also over the past year and a half, as I've been mentioning, uh, in which South Korea and the U.S. have had different views about foreign affairs. If we focus specifically on North Korea, clearly uh, President Moon would want to move forward with stronger engagement, especially economic engagement with North Korea, and the U.S. doesn't want this. If you look at the Nomokion years, this was during the George W. Bush administration, and also wanted a rapprochement with North Korea at a time when the grid framework was about to be finished by the Bush administration and there were tensions between the U.S. and, and North Korea. So there are going to be instances in which there are going to be these tensions which are going to be open uh, sometimes because South Korea has had a move towards a more independent foreign policy. Uh, this is not only under the liberals. If you look, for example, at conservatives in South Korea who are under 30, under 40, who, who have little recollection of the Cold War, they tend to also have this outlook of South Korea being a more independent foreign policy actor, uh, which can lead to some tensions in the alliance with the U.S. Okay, thank you so much. So other than South Korea's relationship with China and the U.S., another trilateral relationship that has gained a lot of international attention recently is the one between South Korea, Japan, and the U.S. Can you speak more about this relationship and its importance and perhaps also how recent events such as the Japan-South Korea trade war last summer has affected this trilateral relationship? So this relationship is a very interesting dynamic because under President Obama, he worked very hard to make sure that there was trilateral cooperation. So there were trilateral meetings, trilateral summits, intelligence sharings uh, taking place as well between the different countries that are part of this triangular relationship. So uh, you saw a great effort to improve cooperation between three of them uh, and the conservative presidents in South Korea that were in power then, so uh, President Park and before her President Imun Bak, and they were supportive of trilateral cooperation, right? I would argue, especially President Park did try to improve the relationship, for example, by reaching an agreement with Japan on the comfort women issue. So this was working quite well, but there was a lot of effort on the U.S. side to make sure that there was trilateral cooperation. Now, when President Trump came to power, he made very clear that he wanted a different relationship with U.S. allies across the world, and this included South Korea. Uh, and Japan. So you have seen a deterioration relations between South Korea and Japan, which obviously has to do with domestic factors in both of them. But I think it also has to do with the fact that the U.S. has not really been pushing for trilateral cooperation in the way that it was doing under President Obama. Now, this is, from a U.S. perspective, this is a very important relationship because obviously it's the two main allies that the U.S. has in the whole of East Asia, not only in Northeast Asia. Uh, for Japan, it is also uh, quite important because in its competition with China, uh, working together with South Korea would be ideal from Tokyo's perspective. From a South Korean perspective, I think it's a little bit uh, trickier because South Korea is right next to China. 
China plays a very important role, obviously, on the North Korean issue, on the North Korean nuclear issue, but also on the potential for reconciliation and, and who knows in the future reunification between uh, both Koreas. So South Korea has to balance its relationship with uh, the U.S. and Japan on the one hand and with China on the other hand. This means that from a South Korean perspective, collateral cooperation with Japan and the U.S., it might not be as important as it is for the other two because it has other objectives that it wants to reach in its foreign policy. So a very important relationship, but seen differently by three countries that are part of it. And we saw this uh, clearly with the trade uh, war started last year between Japan and South Korea, right? When Prime Minister Abe decided to remove South Korea from the wide list of preferred export partners of Japan. And what we saw when this happened is that South Korea was very willing to engage in this trade war as well and took uh, the same measure. It is true that there has been a de-escalation in recent months before the COVID-19 pandemic became the central issue at the global level, but also in East Asia, you had seen the escalation by Japan and South Korea. So I would expect that after the pandemic is over, both President Moon and Prime Minister Abe We'll try to build on that and try to stop the trade war because from an economic perspective, business people, political leaders in, in, in both sides, they realize uh, the war doesn't make sense. And obviously there's a trade war going on. There's a change in government in the U.S. and the Democrats win. The trilateral cooperation that we saw under Obama would be more difficult to achieve if the trade war between Japan and South Korea is still ongoing. So earlier on, you spoke briefly about how South Korea has recently put in more effort in strengthening its relationships with countries in Southeast Asia. So speaking more generally about its future in this region, as well as the broader Asia-Pacific region, how do you see South Korea's positionality evolving? I think that when it comes to taking a neutral position in U.S.-Japan competition, which has been the policy of the current administration, and to an extent, Pak government followed a very similar policy, even though back then there wasn't as much competition between the US and China. I think this will continue. I think there is an agreement both among liberals and most conservatives that it doesn't make sense for South Korea to antagonize one of the two great powers in the region. And this case, obviously, it would be, it would be China. It doesn't make sense to antagonize China for economic reasons, for security reasons. Uh, because of what I mentioned before, the role that, that China plays inter-Korean relations and North Korean affairs. So I think that balancing role uh, will continue uh, no matter who wins the presidential election that will come up in a couple of years. I also think that when it comes to the policy of stronger relations with Southeast Asia and with India, we are focusing mostly on, on economics here. We're talking mostly about economics. I think this will also continue. Uh, I mean, President Moon is not the first South Korean president that pushed for stronger relations with Southeast Asia. Probably he has been the one that has been more strategic and more open about this, and the one that has uh, made clear that India should be included as part of this approach towards Southeast Asia and, and India itself and South Asia. So, so I think that will continue as well, no matter what happens in the region. Now, I think the big question here is, What's going to happen if we see TPP being expanded and the U.S. being part of TPP again? Because on the other hand, we have RCEP, which is a trade agreement that includes the ASEAN plus six countries. So there is this trade competition, so to speak, between an East Asia agreement and an Asia-Pacific agreement. There are many uh, analysts and policymakers in South, in South Korea who think that South Korea should be part of the negotiation process that took place under President Obama. 
and that if the U.S. decides to rejoin uh, TPP, that South Korea should be part of it. Would this be seen as antagonistic by China that is not part of the, of, of the agreement? That's the, that's the big question. So I think that's an interesting discussion that is currently taking place in South Korea. That from an economic perspective, it would make sense to be part of this Asia-Pacific trade agreement. But from a political perspective, this could be detrimental to relations with China. So that's a, a decision that wouldn't be easy to make. And the last important issue on which I think there is no agreement in South Korea is how much to support this notion of the Indo-Pacific. When it comes to non-traditional security issues, for example, dealing with pandemics, uh, there was a meeting that included the so-called Indo-Pacific Plus, and South Korea was very at discussion about how to deal with pandemics uh, at a regional level. When it comes to formally joining the free and open Indo-Pacific or any sort of Indo-Pacific concept, this would be difficult for the current administration uh, to do, and it has been very clear that they don't want to do so, to formally endorse this, uh, this concept. But this could happen in the future if this becomes less antagonistic towards China and maybe a conservative government that wants to have an even stronger alliance with the U.S. decides that it is in the interest of the country. Thank you for sharing your insights on that. I think it'll definitely be really interesting to see how these relations play out in the next few years as we overcome this pandemic and as countries seek to engage with each other in different economic relationships. So to finalize our episode, we like to ask our speakers a fun question. So our question for you today is, where is your favorite place to visit in South Korea and why? This is a, a great question. If we talk about better known places, uh, there are two of them that I really like. Uh, outside of Seoul, uh, I've been many times to Gyeongju, which is the old capital of Silla, right? It has Bulbusa Temple, which is maybe one of the most beautiful temples in, in Korea. It has a grotto, uh, Sokuram. It has a, a pond, which is called Ashi. So if you want to, to relax and see um, a small city, which is very different from Seoul, is uh, very different from, from Busan, so the big cities, in Korea, for me, it's the ideal place to eat, to relax, and maybe forget how to read about everything. All right. So that concludes our episode. Thank you so much, Ramon, for all your insights. We really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Asia Unscripted. Our show page is usasiainstitute.org slash asiaunscripted, where you will find links to this and other Asia Unscripted episodes. You can find US Asia Institute on Facebook at facebook.com slash USAI1979, on Twitter at USAsiaInstitute, and on Instagram at us.asia.institute.